Hey everyone, welcome to the Gatekeepers Podcast. This episode is a message from Pastor Casey as he dives into the story of Jacob wrestling with the angel. If you want to know more about Gatekeepers, visit gatecityatl.com slash gatekeepers. Enjoy. Open your Bibles. Genesis chapter 32. Uh, we have been in Genesis now for almost a year. In February, it'll be a year, and Lord willing, that'll be our last sermon in this series before transitioning to what book? Exodus. Some of you knew that. Yeah. I, I've told the story before, but this, this series honestly started out uh, as, well, I really want to do Exodus but I feel like I should probably do Genesis first. And so we took like a year detour before we could actually get to the one that I wanted to get to, which is Exodus. And so uh, I am really excited uh, to get into the word tonight. If you are new here, which is a lot of you guys, or you don't know me, it's your first time hearing me preach, um, I would just warn you uh, ahead of time, we worship long and we preach longer. And we really, we just don't put a limit on service. So if you're expecting to get out here at nine o'clock, that's probably not gonna happen. we just like the Bible. And, and to be honest, I like to preach. Amen. Amen. All right. Genesis 32. So um, we actually left off uh, at Genesis 27. So we're going to be skipping um, several chapters, but I, I need to I kind of need to give you the whole story. If you remember uh, the last sermon in this series, uh, we were talking about Jacob's ladder. Right. And so we're in the we're in kind of the narrative of Jacob's life. And so I'm going to just recap it uh, from the beginning. We're going to cover the four chapters briefly uh, that we are missing. And then we're going to get into uh, one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible. It's Jacob wrestling with God. Cool. So we got a lot to cover. Uh, if you remember uh, the, the very first sermon we covered, uh, Jacob, uh, his birth and uh, his stealing of the birthright or his uh, conning, so to speak, uh, Esau out of his birthright. And, and there were some things that are really important to know about that is at the beginning of the story, we find Jacob and Esau are in the womb of Rebekah and they're fighting. And when they come out, Jacob is clutched on the heel of Esau. And commentators will tell us that chances are Jacob, in whatever weird kind of way, was trying to fight for his place as the firstborn. That's why he was clutching the heel of Esau. Obviously, he loses. Esau is born first. And so Jacob is the younger brother. He is not going to inherit the birthright, which is the right to inherit the blessing. And if you remember, the blessing is really important. Usually the blessing is, a, is uh, like, it's, it's basically the, uh, it's the approval, number one, of the father. And then it's the giving of all of the assets when he's dying. And so that person kind of becomes the power of attorney. But here, really important, uh, the blessing that he wanted to inherit was actually to be the one through which the lineage of Abraham's promise was going to come to pass. Right. Remember God's promise to Abraham. He said, I'm going to make you a nation. Right. And in order to have a nation, there has to be a lineage. That lineage, Jacob wanted to be in that lineage, which was the blessing. But more than that, he wanted the approval of his father. 
And so what we find is Jacob, man, he is like, he is the schemer. His name literally means uh, deceiver, and he is constantly scheming, he's constantly lying, he is manipulating. He so longs for the blessing that he's willing to do anything necessary to get it. So much so that when it comes time for Esau to receive that blessing as the firstborn from his father, Isaac, Isaac sends Esau out to go hunt his favorite game and to go cook his favorite game. And Jacob puts on some wool on his hands. Remember that? Because Esau was the hairy one. Isaac is blind at this point, so can't really tell the difference. And Jacob walks up to Isaac and we see something really important in Genesis 27. Uh, This is Isaac. Says, uh, I'm sorry, this is this part is Jacob. Uh, then he came to his father and said, My father. And Isaac responded, Here I am. Very important. Who are you, my son? Jacob said to his father, I am Esau, your firstborn. So he becomes an entirely different person. And what becomes uh, very evident throughout the text is that Jacob longs longs for approval and purpose. Approval and purpose. And he will do anything to get it, including imposter as another person, including wearing a mask, including doing everything he possibly can in his own strength to gain approval and to gain purpose. And then what we find is Esau comes back, realizes his blessing His birthright, it's been stolen from him. He weeps bitterly and then makes a vow that he's going to kill Jacob. Now, Jacob, being like you and me, bails. He's like, I'm not doing that. And so he leaves and he goes to live with a family member named Laban. And on that journey is where we get Genesis 27 or Genesis 28, where the the Jacob's ladder uh, narrative comes into play. And that's what we talked about last week or how many weeks ago at this point. And if you remember, we made a couple of very significant discoveries about Jacob's ladder. Jacob's ladder was uh, the, 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 the first time that we've realized in the story that heaven and earth are not completely severed that there still is a connection point. And Jacob sees this ladder and he sees angels ascending and descending upon it and he hears the voice of God. And then what we also notice is we flipped over to John and we saw in chapter one that Jesus actually is Jacob's ladder, that Jacob's ladder was always there to foreshadow the Messiah, Jesus. And he says this in John chapter one, he says, "Uh, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the son of man. Jesus is heaven meeting earth, and one day the covenant will be completely and totally rectified and fulfilled, and heaven and earth will be one again, and we will be restored back to the Garden of Eden where we can walk with God, having made our choice between the two trees, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We have chosen the tree of life. That's kind of how this whole thing's going to go. Now, that's where we left off. I'm covering about four chapters in a very short period of time because I really want to talk about Jacob wrestling. So here's what happens. Jacob leaves that encounter with the Lord. It says that the son, uh, the son goes down and then he basically leaves to go to Laban's house. And he gets there and he falls in love with this woman named 
Rachel? Yeah. You guys know the story a little bit? Kids church, anything? Yeah. He falls in love with Rachel, right? And, and Rachel basically sweeps him off of his feet. Rachel is Laban's daughter. He goes up to Laban and he says, I want to marry your daughter. I'll do anything. I'll scheme. I'll do anything. What can I do in my own power to get Rachel? And he says, you got to work for me for seven years. And Jacob's like, that's fine. I can do that. And the Bible actually gives a really sweet kind of uh, line. It's like the seven years basically goes by like that because of how much he loved Rachel, which is really sweet, right? Yeah. And then uh, on wedding night, it's time to do the thing that you do on wedding night. But there's some weird customs in the land. And... That night, he gets Rachel's older sister, Leah. Laban uh, had been trying to find a, a suitor for Leah, and uh, nobody, was, nobody was choosing her for whatever reason, okay? And so he needed to get the older sister married off first, and if you, if you, can, you can Google it if you'd like, but there's like some, some theories on why he wouldn't have known uh, that she was Leah or, and, and not Rachel. Some of them have to do with alcohol. That's probably a, a good little plug that you shouldn't drink too much. I'm just going to throw that out there, right? But... He wakes up. It's Leah. Oh, my word. It's not Rachel. He's worked seven years. He didn't want to marry Leah. He gets Rachel. So then he goes to Laban and he's like, what's going on? And basically, it's kind of a gotcha moment. It's the deceiver getting deceived. And Laban says, listen, you weren't familiar with the customs of our day. You didn't ask, so I didn't tell you. But I can't marry off my older, my younger daughter before I marry off the older daughter. And he goes, I'll tell you what, you work for me for, work for, me for another seven years and then you can have Rachel. And so right then and there, he gets Rachel and then has to work off for seven years. Now, uh, so, so just think about this. In a span of about 24 hours, he goes from being single to having two wives. That's a lot of problems. No offense. That's a lot of issues that he's going to have to deal with. This was not the way that he expected things to go. And as such, things did not go well in his marriage. You can imagine he loves Rachel. He chose Rachel. He's infatuated with Rachel, yet he gets Leah. The Bible describes Leah um, essentially as, as somebody who the culture would look down upon, unwanted, unloved, and at least in that culture was seen as relatively unattractive. That's how the Bible describes her. That's not how the Bible describes Rachel. And so here you can imagine if you are if you are Jacob, you have two wives, one you didn't choose that was kind of forced upon you, who you have zero attraction towards, who you do not want. And then you have Rachel over here. Who do you think he's going to favor? Rachel and Leah. Man, she she gets the, the she gets shafted in this whole story. You can read it is so sad. The way that Jacob treats her. The way that everybody treats her. Can you imagine being Leah in that moment? You were told to go marry somebody who you didn't choose, who you don't love. You're seen as a burden and your father casts you out, says, go marry this other person. And the very person that she married doesn't want her. It's sad. I want to read to you what happens because uh, the problem is Rachel and Leah, they were both barren. They couldn't have children. The lineage has to continue, right? He, Jacob got the blessing. He's supposed to be the one who the nation is birthed out of. 
but he just got two wives who can't have children. And so God, in his kindness, sees that Leah is unloved and opens her womb. Look at this. This is Genesis 29. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again, bore a son, and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. And she named him Simeon, which, oh, by the way, only further solidifies the point that children are a blessing regardless of the home situation. The Bible says that children are a reward, a gift, and a blessing. And so you need to know, if you came into this world in a very broken situation that was through no fault of your own, that you are a gift, that you are a blessing. Eventually, God would open the womb of uh, Rachel. They would get a couple of servants involved in total. Jacob would essentially have uh, four wives. Two of them were actually wives. Two of them were servants slash concubines. And uh, Jacob, well, he has a lot of kids. He has 12 sons and a daughter named Dina. Okay. Now here's what's, I just want to take a moment and, and, and look at this story briefly. It has nothing to do with Jacob wrestling. I just find it so instructive and so stunning. Leah, unloved, unwanted, a burden in her culture, a burden in her family. The Lord sees her affliction, opens her womb, blesses her, and not only blesses her, she has more children than all of the other three women. And the children that she has go on to be two of the most important, important lineages in all of Judaism. She has a son named Levi. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, Levi is where the entire priesthood would come out of. They trace their lineage to Leah, the unloved, unwanted burden of a woman, the one who the, 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 the society has cast out and her family has cast out. The priests come from her. But not just Levi. She has another son and his name would be Judah. And Judah has a stunning arc in the book of Genesis. I can't wait till we get to it. But Judah, if you know anything about your Old Testament, is the line by which the Messiah would come forth himself. Not Rachel. Leah. And so it speaks of a couple of different things to me. When I think about Jesus, Jesus was born of a woman who was outcasted by her society, who was called the village harlot, and the village lunatic. Can you imagine? She's betrothed to be married. And before marriage night, she comes up pregnant. And she's trying to explain to everybody, no, 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 it's the Lord. The Holy Spirit has conceived this child within me. It's not me. I didn't sleep around. You think anybody believes her? Jesus comes into this earth with somebody unloved, a woman unloved, outcasted, seen as the village harlot and the village lunatic. And that's the last person that he comes from. And the very first person that he comes from is another woman who is unloved and outcasted from her culture. And I love that because it speaks, number one, to the humility of Jesus. But number two, it speaks of God's heart for women. 
dude, you can read this Bible through whatever the lens you want to. And so many people will twist scripture and say that, that, this, is, that this Bible is like anti-women. And I gotta be honest with you, we've already gone through Genesis. We've gone through more than half of Genesis and we have seen our fair share of mistreatment of women. And every time a man mistreats a woman, it is God himself who comes down and rectifies it. Every time. And it's absolutely remarkable. Jesus traces his line to Leah, not to Rachel. All right. Jacob ends up staying in Laban's land for about 20 years. Okay, and, and he schemes some more and basically exploits Laban's wealth so, so that he can become wealthy. And it's a really odd story. You can read about it in Genesis 30. It's about speckled goats. It's literally what it's about, speckled goats. You could go read it. He, he exploits Laban's wealth, becomes wealthy himself, and then makes the decision, it's time to take my wealth and my family back to Canaan because that's where he's from. He's from what would be the promised land. He left the promised land, and now he's got to go back to the promised land if he's going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. Well, upon him gathering his things and gathering his people and leaving to go to Canaan, Esau gets wind that Jacob's coming home. The last time we saw Esau, he was crying bitterly and said he was going to kill Jacob when he saw him. So you can imagine Esau's pretty pissed. He's got an army behind him of 400 men. And Jacob all of a sudden realizes, oh, no, I'm in trouble. I've heard Esau's coming and he's coming with 400 men. Just let it sink in. So Jacob does what a good schemer does. And he comes up with a great leadership plan. I mean, just nails it. Three-step plan. Step one, he's going to divide all of his things and all of his people into two camps, and he's going to send them in different directions so that if one camp gets overtaken, the other camp can leave. And then he's going to pray. That's step two. Step two was really good. You can go read his prayer. It is absolutely fantastic. It's basically him realizing, oh, I've got this coming to me. I have schemed. I have deceived. I have lied. I have stolen. I have lived a life of sin, and I have this coming to me. And then he declares the goodness of God and the mercy of God and invokes God's mercy and invokes God's promise. So that's step two. Then step three, he uh, starts sending waves, like you could read it, like literally like just giant waves and caravans of gifts all the way to Canaan, to Esau, hoping to kind of win his brother over and give him a little bribe. That's his plan. And so he goes through with it. He sends, he divides two camps. He sends them on their way. He sends all the gifts in, in, in the form of caravans. And then he's sitting all alone in the dark the day before he knows he's going to run into Esau. That's the setting. Now, listen, I'm going to read this text and there's a couple of ways you could look at this, um, and, I, and I think both are valid, but I'm only going to look at this from one perspective today, okay? You can look at this, this uh, God wrestling with Jacob as Jacob's kind of conversion moment, that this is, this is where he becomes the, 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 the saved Jacob, so to speak. Or you can look at this as this is the moment where he just got serious, 
that he was, quote unquote, saved this entire time, one of God's people this entire time that he was living this terrible life. That's actually the way that I'm going to preach it tonight. And I'll tell you why. The first thing uh, I want to look at before, uh, well, wait a second, I'm going all over the place. I'll tell you why. Uh, I am convinced that because Jacob received the blessing from his father, and God, if you remember, had prophesied that Jacob was going to be the one who uh, ultimately inherited the blessing, that Jacob was considered his entire life one of God's people. Okay? I'm just convinced of it. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read this. We're going to get into the text. I'm just going to give you three observations, and then we'll get out of here. Genesis 32. This is, chapter, or this is verse 24, verses 24 through 32. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the dawn is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So God says to him, or the man says to him, what's your name? And he responds, Jacob. Your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel, for he said, I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel, and he was limping on his thigh. Therefore, to this day, the sons of Israel do not eat the sinew of the hip, which is on the socket of the thigh, because God touched the socket of Jacob's thigh in the sinew of the hip. There's another account of this, and it's only like one verse. And it's in Hosea. And I'm going to read it, because if you, if you just go with Genesis 32, it kind of makes it sound like Jacob's the champion. Right? That's how we all hear it preached. Let's look at what Hosea says when he recounts it. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel in his maturity or his old age. He contended with God. Yes, he wrestled with the angel and prevailed. Yet he wept and sought his favor. That word favor is the same term for blessing. So what we find is at the end of this wrestling match... It's, it's really not Jacob standing there like, ha ha, I have won. What it is is Jacob literally on his knees, weeping and begging God to bless him. The first observation I want to look at is this. God pursues Jacob in his darkest hour. God pursues Jacob in his darkest hour. Look at the way the text is written. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. Who initiates it? It's God. Jacob's just sitting there alone. We don't even get any indication that Jacob's praying. He is literally just sitting there waiting for the army of 400 men to come and give him what is due his. 
He's literally waiting for his sin and the consequences of his sin to come over the hills and take him out. And then it says, God initiates. A man came and wrestled with him. There's a few things I want you to look about Jacob. I told you, Jacob has been made a partaker of the promise through Isaac's blessing. So for all intents and purposes, Jacob was God's man. For all intents and purposes, Jacob was one of God's people, which means that Jacob probably was not one of these pagan, idolatrous worshipers. To use New Testament language, he wasn't a Gentile, he was a Jew. He wasn't a non-believer dead in his sin. He was a new, he was a believer who had been made alive by faith. Jacob was one of God's people. Now here's why this is so important. Because you and me need to find ourselves in this story. If we just read it as, well, he was a slave to his sin and he didn't know any better and and he didn't want anything to do with God his whole life, it's not going to be as applicable to everybody else in the room. But I'm convinced via the text that he was considered one of God's people. And as one of God's people, a born again, he lived a life of manipulation, deception, deep insecurity, had hurt himself and the people he loved because of his sin. He is at the lowest point of maturity you can be or perhaps the highest point of immaturity. It's the born again and it's the darkest hour of his life. His sin is coming to reckon with him in the form of 400 men. Can you imagine that for just a second? Yet it's this moment that God decides to show up. It's this moment. The moment, can you imagine? Just like, you're Jacob. Your, your biggest sin is getting ready to be found out by everyone, and you're getting ready to die for it. Imagine the, the anxiety that's deep within you. Imagine how you would feel knowing you're getting ready to die. And it's your fault. And then God shows up. What do you think God is thinking in the moment? If we're Jacob and we all of a sudden get face to face with God and he starts wrestling with us, every single one of us start thinking, yep, this is it. God's coming for me. He's angry. But no, He's sitting alone in the dark, no doubt full of guilt, shame, regret, and remorse. And in this moment, God shows up with the intention to deal with his heart and to bestow a blessing. That is a stunning thought. In other words, God is not put off by Jacob's issues. God doesn't look at him and say, well, you had it coming. Well, this is what you're going to get. You deserve this. You cheated him out of his blessing. I told you not to sin, but you kept sinning. This is your due penalty. He doesn't say it. He also doesn't just ignore Jacob. He doesn't ignore Jacob in his absolute darkest, most intense time of pain and fear. God leaves his heavenly post and comes down because he sees that his child is alone and afraid. Man. 
Think about this. If you were Jacob and you had lived the life that Jacob had lived while being a Christian and your sin is getting ready to get you, don't we all think that God's getting ready to use the 400 men to give justice and come for blood? Don't we all look at that army on the hill and go, yeah, that just must be God's justice. This is right. We probably all view it that way. But what we find out is God's actually not coming for blood. And this is really important because there are those of you in the room that you are, you are born again believer, right? But you have been stuck in the same place of immaturity that Jacob is in. And every time you sin, you feel like you are storing up for yourself wrath. And one day the bubble's going to burst and God's going to say, I'm done with you. Release the army. And you're, and you're terrified that your day of reckoning is going to come and God's coming for blood. And what you don't realize, Christian, is God already came for blood. Amen. And he had his fair share of it. God came for blood. Yes, he's coming for blood for your sin. And he did it on the cross. Your day of reckoning... It happened. And you and I were in this story. We're like Jacob and we're terrified. God's coming after us. And God says, I am coming after you, but I'm just trying to give you a blessing. I'm trying to deal with that thing in your heart that is, that is giving you death and destruction everywhere you go. And he would. He would. Now listen, to be sure, you will reap what you sow. God does not always shield us from the consequences of our sin. You just need to know that. He doesn't. But what you have been shielded from because of the obedience of the Son is the punishment of your sin. You see there's a difference between consequence and punishment? If you go out and you rob a bank, you're going to go to jail. That's a consequence of your sin. But for those of you, those of us who have been born again and bought with a price and God already came for the blood, we're no longer to be punished for our sin for Jesus took the ultimate punishment. Okay? So yes, you will reap what you sow. And God does not always shield us from the earthly consequences of our sin. But I want to give you this. This is 1 John chapter 4. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. We all love that verse. That verse is talking about this very thing. This is what he says. Because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Do you get it? He says, listen, you're not perfected in love because you're operating in fear of being punished. He goes, if you were being perfected in love, you wouldn't be concerned about being punished anymore. You've made light the love of God and the kindness of God. God is not put off by you, dear Christian. He's not put off by your sin or your immaturities, your mistakes or your failures. And here we see God's character on full display. Not only is God coming with a blessing, he's coming to sit with Jacob in the midst of his pain, in the midst of his shame, until the sun rises. It's stunning. The second point I want to give you is this. Looking at the text, God's approval is the only one that matters. God's approval is the only one that matters. This is why it's so important. I harp on this all the time. When you guys read the Bible, you need to read a lot of the Bible at a time. OK, 
okay? We're not doing the, I'm just going to randomly flip it and go, okay, there's half a psalm. I'm good. Okay, it's so important that we read, not just in context, but we need to read the whole book. We need to read the whole chapter and all the chapters that are along with it. We need to look for what I call narrative threads, because if you don't, you're going to miss this story, because the story doesn't start in Genesis 32. It starts in Genesis 27. At the very beginning, what is Jacob after? A blessing. From the very beginning, Jacob is after favor. He wants his father's blessing. And he gets it. That's stunning. Right, look at this. Okay, so so here we go. Genesis 25, he wants the birthright and he schemes to get it. Genesis 27, he wants the blessing and he lies to get it. And in Genesis 32, what does he want from God? The blessing. It's the same thing. He's after the same thing, even though he seemingly has it. He is after God's approval. He had the blessing from Isaac, yet after having it, it clearly wasn't enough for him. His entire life story is trying to prove that he's worthy enough to be approved. That's Jacob's whole story. And that's what God's actually coming to deal with here. Now, this is something that I deal with personally that I know that everybody in this room probably deals with, this need for approval. And what I have found, right, we're now going to, I'm going to walk into opinion territory for just a second. What I have found is that most Christians deal with two groups of people that they are trying so desperately to gain the approval of, their parents and their authority. Parents and authority. And I've given a lot of thought to it because, man, I got to be honest with you, like this is where I live. I am constantly trying to please authority because I want them to approve of me. And I'm constantly trying to please my mom and dad because I want their approval, right? I think the reason is, again, we're in opinion territory because the Bible speaks so much of honor, that we are to honor our mother and father, that we are to honor our authority, that all authority is given from God and therefore we are to honor it. And and I think what happens in our minds is is we go, okay, well, wait a second. If, if, If I'm honoring well, that means, that guarantees that they're going to approve of me. And so if they approve of me, that means I've honored well. And so if, if, how do I know if I've honored well? Because the Bible says I'm supposed to honor. How do I know if I've honored my mom and dad well? Because they're going to approve of me. And if they don't approve of me, then I have done something wrong. If my pastor doesn't approve of me, then I have done something wrong. If my authority doesn't approve of me, then I have done something wrong. I have not honored well enough. And listen, I'm just going to tell you, You can do everything the Bible tells you to do as it relates to honoring and still not gain the approval of anybody. You can, in other words, you can honor the Lord and gain the approval of nobody. You can have the approval of the Lord and gain the approval of nobody. And it's really, really important that you guys get this now because you're at the worst age for this. Because you're like, you're like in your early 20s and you're really trying to figure out how am I going to be an adult? How am I going to pave my way in the world? How am I going to make decisions now that are going to affect me in 20 years while honoring 
my mother and father. And I, I sit with you guys and I, and I feel the same pain that you feel because I feel it. I, I got to listen to my mom and dad. I got to do what they tell me to do because I need their approval. If I, if, if I have their approval, then my life will go well. And I just want to, just, here's what I want to give you. Your, uh, the test of maturity here is you need to get to the place where you're living for the audience of one. Where that is the most important thing that matters to you. Do you have the approval of God? Okay? That's what Jacob's after here. Because you see, Jacob actually got the approval that he was looking for from Isaac. And it wasn't good enough. Because what's he still pining after? With weeping and tears. I need your blessing. I need your blessing. The only blessing that you need is the Lord's. Now, I'm going to caveat that in just a second. We're going to go back to that. I want to give you just briefly for all the people who are practical. Let me give you four biblical ways that you can honor people, whether they approve of you or not. So if you do these things to your mother and your father, and you do these things to your uh, authority figures... In the Lord's eyes, you have honored. You're approved by him, whether it's reciprocated by those in authority. Here it is. Number one, you speak well of them. Ephesians chapter four. That means anytime there's an opportunity for you to get on the bandwagon and start bashing them, you don't. Number two, you think the best of them. You think well of them. It's 1 Corinthians 13. You can't have love if you're not going to think the best of them. Number three, you consider them as more important than yourself. That's Philippians 2. So let's just take a second. I hope you're taking inventory. You're thinking about perhaps your mother and your father. You're thinking about maybe your spiritual mother and father. You're thinking maybe even about me for some of you. Then you're going, well, how do, I, how do I honor them? That's what you do. Speak well of them, think the best of them, consider them as more important than yourself. And then number four, don't take advantage of them. That's the biblical mode of honor. And there's probably a few more, but I'm just going to tell you right now, if you do those things, you can rest assured that you have gained God's approval and honoring your authority, whether they approve you or not. You don't take advantage of them. It's really interesting. Um, If you go back and you look at all the prophetic books, both major and minor prophets, one of the primary things God judges his people for is taking advantage of one another. It's in literally like every book. It's stunning. So let me tie this to the text. What can happen is you can get the approval that you so long for, like Jacob, and you realize it doesn't satisfy the itch. I'm going to tell you that's because the itch is because you're looking for God's approval. The other thing that can happen, which I don't see in the text, but I see in real life all the time, is we can sometimes assume that if we have our authority's approval, then we have God's. If my mom and dad are pleased with me, if my spiritual authority is pleased with me, if my fill in the blank is pleased with me, if my peers are pleased with me, then that clearly must mean God's pleased with me. And that is a very false reality to live out of. You know what Jesus says? I was was meditating on this a couple of months ago. Jesus says in Luke 6, woe to you when all men speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the false prophets in the same way. That's a terrifying verse. 
You cannot live for man's approval. Now, here's that caveat that I'm telling you about. I am not giving you a license to go do rogue Christianity. You are not allowed to be like, well, it's just me and God and I have God's approval and I can do whatever I want. Because I'm going to be honest with you, most of you probably haven't even read your Bible all the way through. So how the heck do you know if you have God's approval? You cannot go around and be like, well, it's just me and God. Because God himself didn't design it that way. So what I'm not telling you to do is release all manner of others' expectations for you. What I'm telling you to do is understand that God's approval is the most important. Find the people that also are very important to you. Okay? And you should care about what they think. That's not everybody. That may be your mom and dad. That may not be mom and dad. That may be me. That may not be me. I have a group of people, probably 10, maybe 12, that I really care what they think about me. But do you know why? Because I know that they're going to hold me to a biblical standard. And I know that they're going to call me out if I'm, if I'm uh, le- you know, going astray in some form or fashion. If I'm taking a liberty too far, I care what they think about me because I know they're thinking about me through the lens of the Bible. Most people are not thinking about you that way. So you can untether yourself from some people's expectations. But no, number one, you have to, have to seek the approval of God. Live for the audience of one. And then the last point, I think it's the last point. It's not the last point. Sorry. It's almost there. Jacob's humility and brokenness invoked the blessing. Jacob's humility and brokenness invoked the blessing. And you may ask, where on God's green earth do you see in the text that Jacob is humble and broken? Because the truth is, if we read Genesis 32, it doesn't really seem like he's humble and broken. We're kind of reading into the text there, and I'm going to prove it to you. Here's how I know that he's humble and broken. And broken. This is verse 27. God says, or he, yeah, God says to Jacob, what is your name? Stop right there. What is your name? You remember the last time he sought a blessing? It was with Isaac, right? He dressed up like Esau. Do you remember that Isaac asked him the very same question? Then he came to his father and said, my father. And Isaac said, here I am. Who are you? Some of you know where I'm going with this. Jacob responds and he says, I'm Esau. I'm your firstborn, but not here. Same pattern. Again, it's so important that we read the entire book. Okay, same pattern. He's seeking after a blessing. The same question is posed to him. God says, who are you? And Jacob finally admits who he is. He takes off the mask He doesn't pretend to be something he's not. He's sitting in his shame and his guilt and his remorse and his regret. And he answers with the best possible answer. He says, I'm Jacob. I'm the deceiver. Utter humility. No pretense. This is who I am. I'm the deceiver. I'm the liar. I'm the schemer. I'm the oppressor. I am the manipulator. 
And that tells me exactly where Jacob's heart was in the moment. And it was that heart issue that Jacob was not being honest with who he was to himself and he wasn't being honest with who he was with everybody else in his life that God needed to get to the root issue. And it was that level of humility, that broken moment that God then bestows the blessing. Now, what's the blessing? That's what you need to ask. I'm going to read it. He said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. God replied, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And that translation is a little wonky. I'll explain that in a second. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he blessed him there. So Jacob named the place Peniel. For he said, I have seen God face to face and yet with my life been preserved. Now the sun rose upon him just as he crossed over Penuel and he was limping on his thigh. And the last point I want to look at is the blessing revealed. Because if you are anything like me, at first go around, the blessing is clear. His name is Israel. It gets a name change. But what we see is actually the blessing is twofold. He doesn't just get a new name. He gets a new walk. Did you catch it? He doesn't just get a new name. Your name shall be Israel. He gets a new way to walk. And at the end, the story ends with him walking with a limp. The new name, Israel. It's a stunning, uh, stunning revelation. Israel actually means God prevails. God prevails. And so when we read the translation, it kind of looks like Jacob's the one who prevails. Jacob doesn't prevail. God wins. Israel would be his new name, his new identity, and it would be untethered completely from the name of Jacob, and it represents the beauty of being defeated by God. Imagine your name being God won me. That's what Israel means. His story was no longer I'm a deceiver. His story was God has won my heart. And it is the ultimate victory. I remember singing the song. Uh, it was actually Joy's song. Is Joy, I don't think she's in here. But Joy Bullard, it was her song called Victory. And, and the chorus is like, you have overcome by the power of the blood. You have the victory. You have the victory. And I'm like thinking about the cross, man. And I'm like, yeah, you have the victory over sin and death. And he's like, yeah, and over your heart. And I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, that was way harder than the cross. Because your heart was so hard. You were so set against me. And I had to win your heart. You have overcome by the power of the blood. You have the victory over my heart. Listen, in this moment, God does a miracle. And he breaks Jacob and gives him a new identity, which is God has won me. The problem is Jacob would have to see himself that way. It's stunning. God is probably giving you all, myself, new names in heaven. We have no idea what they are. But his name, Jacob, was tied to everything that he had done wrong. 
and his new name was tied to everything that God had done right. And even what Jacob had done right, which is let God win. And some of you guys, what you need to realize is that God doesn't see all the things that you did wrong anymore. Your sins, they've been, they've been blotted out. There's a, there's a concept uh, in, in Judaism called the sea of forgetfulness. Who's ever read that? Who's ever heard that before? That's actually not a Bible term. Let me just full disclosure. It's kind of like the rapture. It's a, it's a term that we came up with trying to describe a clear biblical theme. The sea of forgetfulness. Because the Bible speaks that God forgets our sin. He doesn't just forgive it. That when we come to the saving faith of Jesus Christ, all of our sin, he removes from his mind. Do you have any idea how hard it is for an omniscient, all-knowing God to not know something? He causes himself to remove your sin and to throw it into the sea of forgetfulness. And that's Jacob. Jacob is dead. Israel is alive. The only problem is Jacob could not embrace it. It takes several chapters. And finally, God coming back down and being like, look, you've been called Jacob. You're not Jacob. We've been through this. Your name is Israel. Because Jacob just leaves this and basically just, well, I'm still Jacob. He doesn't accept his new identity. He doesn't accept his new name. Now just close your eyes for just a second. Seriously, close them. And I want you to think about this. Imagine every bad, evil, wicked, sinful, rebellious thing and thought that you have ever done completely wiped away. And all that's left are the things you got right. By God's grace, yes, but the things that you got right. That's the way that God sees you if you've been born again. As a matter of fact, on the day of judgment, what we find for those who are believers, we will stand face to face with Jesus and all of our work will be put before God. And he says, all of the, all of the bad and all of the worthless is gonna get burned up. And we're gonna be left with that which is good and we'll be rewarded based on that. You can open your eyes. Some of you have a really hard time accepting your new name. You cannot possibly think that God views you that way. And he does. And guess what? It's not because of you and it's not because you're awesome because you're not. It's because of Jesus. It's because of his obedience. It's because of the initiating plan of God of redemption and salvation. It's all about him. You can either accept it or you can reject it. But it's so important that when you hear the voice of the Lord, you're hearing rightly you're not hearing the voice of the accuser, but the advocate. The second thing, and this is it, is we're going to land the plane. The second part of that blessing wasn't just a new name, it was a new walk. He would never walk the same again. You see, Jacob got a new name, but he needed a new walk to represent that new name. 
And now most of us, if we're going to insert ourselves into the story, when we think about like if we're Jacob and we just had this crazy encounter and uh, we got a new name and, and everything's great again. And, and I've, I finally pulled back the mask and I am who, who I really am. And I've been honest with myself. and I've been honest with God. And, and, and he's like, new name, forgiveness. And then you get Holy Spirit power and grace and gifts. And it's awesome. We think that the new walk is supposed to look like a strut. We think that our new walk is supposed to look awesome, full of strength, full of might. Because we think that that's what glorifies God the most. And here what we see is after this encounter where he gets a new identity, the new walk is not a strut, it's a limp. It's not a sign of strength, but a sign of weakness. Jacob would forever, Israel would forever be known as weak, which is who he was all along. And the temptation can be, when we come to Jesus, we try to start strutting, man. We come to church and we put the Jacob mask back on and we try to get everybody's approval by looking at our strengths and showing off our giftings. How you doing today? I'm doing great, man. I had killer time in the prayer room. How you doing today? Oh, God's just wrecking me. Mask. Because I know you. And I know that you're struggling hardcore in your soul. And I know that you're struggling with pornography and you can't get over the guilt. And I know that you hate the way that you look when you look in the mirror. Now, I'm not saying when somebody says, how you doing? You just go, ah! But you got to be cognizant of it and you got to fall away from the trap of Phariseeism, which is to walk in here like a whitewashed tomb. Look how good I look. Look how loud I worship. Look how high I jump. Look at my Bible. It's tattered. I had this really awesome tattered Bible. And if you saw me with my Bible, legit, you would think that I was like a saint. This thing was falling apart. It was awesome. And then it got stolen. Well, on my MacBook. So mad. You remember it. And I literally, I, I, I got on the thing and I was like sending the guy on, on I was like, who, you know, whoever opens the MacBook, you can send him a message. I was like, keep the Mac, give me my Bible, please. That's my Bible. Do you know what the Lord showed me? That wasn't my Bible, it was my badge. My badge of honor. Look how much Bible I've read. Look, look. I'm in the prayer room. Look at this. Now listen, here's the thing. This is what I want you guys to know. None of those things that I just listed are wrong, but they are wrong the second you use them as a mask, the second you use them as a badge, the second you start turning your walk into a strut. The Christian life, the Christian walk is one that is supposed to be lived weakness forward, not sin forward, weakness forward. Let me read this to you. This is... um, this is Paul uh, to the Corinthian church. He says this. Uh, this is when he gets the thorn in the flesh. We've, we've talked about that a little bit. And he's praying that God would remove this thorn in his flesh. Right? And he prays three times that God would remove it. He did, he did the good Christian thing. Lord, remove this thing. It's not your will. I plead the blood, all that kind of stuff. And God's response is this. My grace, it's sufficient for you. For power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. 
Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, and with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, he is strong. How many of us in the room can say, I am well content with my weaknesses, my insults, my distresses, the persecutions, and the difficulties of following Jesus? Probably none of us. As a matter of fact, we actively try to to get rid of all of those things. We don't show any of those things. And so what I would tell you is when you come here to gatekeepers, my hope is that we would not be like Jacob who feels like he has to wear a mask. We would not turn our limp into a strut, but we would be honest about who we are. How you doing today? You know what, man? I'm honestly just hanging in there. Appreciate your prayers. I told, uh, I'm, I'm trying to live this out. I'm not very good at this because I'm the pastor, right? And so I'm supposed to have the strut. Anthony, um, I talked to you a couple of weeks, I don't know, in the prayer room or something like that, which you're not supposed to talk. I've been breaking that rule like all week and I've gotten in trouble. But I was talking to Anthony and um, uh, last week, several of you guys were really kind and you, and you shot me a text in the middle of service and you were like, hey, I, I really love you and you're grateful for you. And it was like super kind. And Anthony was like, hey, did you get a lot of texts? And I was like, yeah. I was really, really, really struggling that day. Like, rethinking ministry, rethinking all of it. And in that moment, it was like the Lord used you guys to pull me out and to come bring me back to my senses. Like, what the heck are you doing? Thank you. That's cool. But I, I say that because I'm trying to live it out. I, I was telling you. I wasn't like, oh, man, it was great. I'm just awesome. I was like, this is really hard. Being dad, being father, being pastor, it's hard. And it's okay to say that, guys. It's okay to say, how you doing? I am like deeply struggling. I honestly, I haven't prayed all week and I'm feeling dull and dry. Will you pray for me? It's in that place of transparency and vulnerability, man. I'm telling you, that's where family's formed. And when family's formed, we're well protected. Thanks so much for listening. We hope that this message ministered to you and that the Lord met you. You can follow us on Instagram at gatekeepersatl. We'll see you in the next episode.